Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wilds Cast. Today's episode is a rebroadcast of a lunch and learn that Rabbi Wilds gave on Facebook Live. This is the first of two episodes on the topic of health and halacha. Today, Rabbi Wilds discusses the existential question Can you sacrifice one life to save another? It's a particularly important conversation given that we are living during a global pandemic where doctors are unfortunately being faced with these life and death situations. So, without any further ado, here's Rabbi Wilds. All right, so I wanted to uh, devote um, today and tomorrow to the issue of health and halacha, um, because halacha means Jewish law and being healthy, because of course the period of time that we're in now, uh, we are super and hypersensitive to uh, us feeling healthy and um, treating our bodies in the way that uh, they were meant to be treated. As I started saying that, Dr. David Poppers, who's an exceptional physician and dear friend, just came online. Welcome, Rachel. Uh, good afternoon, David. So, um, you know, health in Allah is an incredibly important area, um, and it's hyper, we're hypersensitive to it right now. I just got off the phone with a group of about 20 rabbis from Manhattan, and uh, we meet every week. I've been remiss in my meetings with them, but I participated in the meeting with them this morning, and we, they were discussing when can we open up, when will synagogues and shuls and Jewish community centers and the like start feeling more comfortable opening up our centers. Now, of course, we are waiting for the CDC. Um, we are waiting for um, the governor and the mayor and everyone in New York who is the legal and binding authority to tell us when we can open, but how quickly after we can legally open do we want to open because we want to make sure that we are not part of the problem. I've been saying this for two months, but part of the solution. Why? Because according to Judaism, health and um, preserving human life is supreme. It trumps all the other mitzvot. There are technically three exceptions to that, murder, sexual immorality, and idol worship. But short of those three extreme examples, uh, we take our health more seriously than we take, let's say, observing Shabbat or keeping kosher. If the only way to stay alive is to eat something which isn't kosher, you have to break the laws of Shabbat, of, of Kashrut. If the only way to preserve a life, um, even if it's a question of a life-threatening situation, we always err on the side of caution and we err towards the side of what's called in the Hebrew, v'chai behem, to live by the Torah. And v'loshi amut, as the, as the Talmud says, and not to die by them. So Dr. David Poppers just posted the, the rabbinic term, it's called pikuach nefesh, if there's a life-threatening situation, or I want to refine that, even a suffolk pikuach nefesh, even if there's a question. Dr. Poppers says, no, it's fine, I'm not concerned, but Dr. Poppers has a, um, Dr. David has a colleague in a different hospital who feels otherwise. We always err on the side of caution and we follow the doctor that's more conservative whenever it comes to saving and preserving a life. So I wanted to um, talk about a couple of medical ethical issues that are sort of tangentially connected to this whole health and halacha. Today, the question of 
when is it okay to sacrifice one life to save another? And tomorrow I wanna to speak about elective surgery, specifically cosmetic surgery. When is it okay, or is it ever okay, to put yourself under the knife when you just wanna look better? You wanna feel better about yourself by removing a part of the body or by adding something to the body that might make you feel or make you look more attractive. We're gonna to devote tomorrow to that. And today we wanna to talk about when is it okay to take one person's life in order to preserve another. This unfortunately has come up in hospitals where there was a shortage at some point of respirators. Um, when so many people were coming in with corona and so many people needed to be hooked up to a respirator and how do you then determine who gets the respirator and who doesn't? And this is an age old question and problem that I wanna share with you by analyzing a totally different situation. And that is the case of the Siamese twins. I've spoken about this over the years and I've done a lot of research about this case. The most famous Siamese twins, because the Siamese twins situations often uh, present this ethical and halachic dilemma more clearly than others. So that we can then take those principles and then apply them to let's say the corona situation, which patient gets the respirator? Is it someone who's more desperate for it? Is it someone who has more likelihood of surviving? You know, sort of triage, that's what a lot of doctors will obviously do. But back in September of 1977, long time ago, there, were, there was a case of Dicephalus twins, the Siamese twins, that were born to a Jewish family in Lakewood, New Jersey. Uh, the children were fused in the ventral area all the way from the shoulder down to the pelvic region. And the twins were taken to a hospital in Philadelphia where none other than C. Everest Koop, who later became the Surgeon General um, of the United States during the Reagan administration, and he was the hospital's chief of surgery. And after the initial evaluation, it became clear to Dr. Koop and to all the other physicians that both children would die unless they were separated. You see, the twins were joined at the chest and they shared the same six-chambered heart. If you remember back from your uh, biology class back in college or in high school, a basically normal heart has four chambers. And what happened here was that a basically normal four-chambered heart of one baby was fused with the stunted two-chambered heart of another baby. And the entire heart could not maintain enough circulation for both children. And the wall that was separating the basically normal four-chambered heart from the other two-chambered heart was too thin to be divided. And even if divided, the two-chambered heart would not be capable of supporting life on its own. And therefore, there, there was only one solution. The one solution, because if they did nothing, in what's called in halachic literature is shev va'altase, sitting and doing nothing, if they did nothing, the entire six-chambered heart, excuse me, if they did nothing, both children would die. So clearly we're trying to save one of the children. So the entire six-chambered heart would therefore have to be given to one child while sacrificing the life of the other. But you'd have to actually actively taking, be actively taking the life of another, which is technically prohibited according to Jewish law. I wanna welcome everyone else that just came on, Zahava Schwartz, Daniel Wallach, uh, who else is on joining us, beautiful group today, Tamar, uh, Scott Shapiro, Maya, thank you all for being here, guys. So now, Dr. Koop himself was a religious man, not Jewish, 
um, he realized the tremendous, tremendous ethical, religious, uh, religious issues at stake. Um, he was also concerned that potential homicide charges could be levied against him. So he immediately referred the case to the Philadelphia courts and permission to perform the seizure was, was immediately granted. But interesting to note that several of the nurses that were scheduled to assist at the operation were practicing Catholics and they pursued religious guidance. There were three anesthesiologists and two nurses also asked not to be put on the case. Now, the parents of the twins were religiously observant Jews. They were actually a Lakewood couple learning in the yeshiva up in Lakewood, New Jersey, very religious Orthodox yeshiva. The father himself was a student in, in rabbinical school. And so they sought out the sage counsel of the late and great Rav Moshe Feinstein, Zechatzak uh, Levracha of blessed memory. Rav Moshe Feinstein has written a lot. He's an expert on medical ethical issues. And he ultimately decided in favor of permitting the procedure. What does that mean? He, he said that halakhically it was permissible to basically sacrifice one of the babies in order to save the other. Remember, if they had done nothing, both babies would die. The only question is, the only way to save one of the two babies is to give the entire six-chambered heart to one child. But in order to do that, you'd have to actually sacrifice the life of the other. You'd have to shorten, basically, the life of the other. Now, shortening a life, hastening the death, is tantamount to murder, as far as Judaism is concerned. But if you do nothing here, they both die. Is that murder? Is that problematic? That's the question. Now, Rabbi Moshe Tendler, um, Rabbi Dr. Moshe Tendler, who's a physician and a biologist, been teaching uh, biology and Talmud up at YU, Yeshiva University, for many decades. He was um, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein's son-in-law, Moshe Feinstein is no longer alive, and a great scholar in his own right, and he was directly involved with the case. He served as the mediator between the doctor, C. Everest Koop, and Rav Moshe Feinstein. And he basically summarized his father-in-law, Rav Moshe Feinstein's psak. Psak means halachic ruling, as follows. Now, take a look at the handout. Um, we posted a handout, just one sheet handout. Really, it'd be great if you could open it up. Binyamin Cohen put it on the chat. So just, guys, take a look at the chat. Take a minute and just open up the handout on the chat. It looks like this. See if you can see that. Can you sacrifice one life to save another? Now, um, it's clear, take a look at the first source, that one life may not be sacrificed for another. Basically, pretty straightforward. Talmud states this explicitly, look at source number one. Um, and, and source number one, though, tells us of the one exception. To every law, there's an exception. What is the exception in Jewish law of the rule that you're not allowed to sacrifice one life to save another? Meaning, I mean, and this happened, unfortunately, in the Holocaust, other modes of persecution where the Nazis came and they went to a group of Jews and they said, give us one of you to kill or we will kill you all. So technically the group is not allowed to choose someone and throw that person forward because you can't actively do that. Now that is contradistinction to another passage in the Talmud that discusses the canteen of water. Famous passage in the Talmud, you're walking in the desert and you are with a friend and there's only enough water in that one canteen to sustain one of you. 
not both. And the Talmud concludes that the person with the flask who's holding it can drink and their, per and their neighbor unfortunately dies. Why is that okay? But it's not okay when the, group of, when the Nazis come to a group of Jewish people and say, give us one of yours, or take this gun and shoot this other person or we will shoot you. Allah is very clear, you're not allowed to shoot the other person. You have to, God forbid, <clears throat> be killed yourself. Why is that the law when you have the situation in the desert? The situation in the desert, there's one canteen, one person's holding the canteen, there's only enough water to, for one person to survive, not both. The halacha is, Talmud rules, <clears throat> that the person holding the canteen can drink up, even though it means the person will die. Can anyone tell me what the difference is between those two cases? Why in the case of the canteen can you drink up and the other person dies? But in the case where someone hands you a gun and says, kill this other person or you'll be killed, <clears throat> then you can't kill the other person. Or in the case where the Nazis come to a group of Jews and say, hand us one of you and we'll kill them or else we'll kill the whole group. You're not allowed to hand over that person. What's the difference between those cases, the gun case, the handover to the Nazis case on one side and then the canteen case? What's the difference? Can anyone say? Give you guys a second. Joel joined, Joseph joined, Marissa, Esbat joined with an honor, Tamar, beautiful group. What's the difference between the two cases? I'll give you another second. Okay, the difference is passive versus active. In the case of the canteen, you're not actively taking the life of another person to save yours. You're just drinking up, and then, unfortunately, because there's no water left, that other person dies. That's very different than you actively taking the life of another. And that's the halacha. You're not permitted to actively do that. Okay? Chani, active homicide. Very good. Chase, one is committing the act of murder. The other is unfortunate natural occurrence. Okay. You're both saying uh, around the same thing. Very, very good. Thank you for both weighing in. Now, there's one major exception to this rule. Exception to the rule of not actively taking the life of another to save one. You're not allowed to do that, except in one situation. Look at source number one on your handout. Ha'isha shehi mekasha leleh. This is from the mission. I'll explain in a minute in the English. A woman who's having a hard time giving birth, and she is actually the baby this is the situation, the Mishnah, that part of the oral tradition is dealing with, where a woman is giving birth and the baby is endangering the life of the mother in the childbirth. It is permissible to abort the fetus within the mother if the, the, the unborn fetus, her, her, his or her delivery, is threatening the life of the mother because the mother's life takes precedence over the baby's life. This is actually in contrast to, um, to Catholic doctrine. Catholicism says that abortion is prohibited under all circumstances. Under Jewish law, abortion is also prohibited. It's considered either murder or it's considered maiming oneself. Either way, it's a biblical prohibition unless... The baby is endangering the life of the mother. Plus, you'll see one next thing on the next line. 
Yatsarubo, if the head emerges, if when the mother is delivering the child, already the head has emerged, then you can't touch the baby. Then you cannot sacrifice the baby's life to save the mother's. Because once the head appears, the rule kicks back in that you can't actively take one life to save the life of another. And this is really interesting. So from the Mishnah, Allah is clear that if an infant in utero is causing danger to the mother, it's permissible to abort the fetus unless the head of the fetus has already been delivered. Then it's forbidden to intercede, even if, God forbid, it costs the life of the mother, because then the child is considered an independent life. And then the basic Jewish principle of ein dochin nefesh mipnei nefesh, of not sacrificing one life to save another, applies. Now, the Talmud asks a question that I'm sure many of you are thinking and asking yourself right now, which is, why is it that just because the child's head appears, you can no longer sacrifice the infant for the mother? Take a look at source number two, where the Talmud asks this question. You know, and, and, and just to strengthen the question, after all, since the infant is still endangering the life of the mother, the infant should be, still could be considered a rodent. What is the reason why? legally, halachically, it would be okay in the situation when the child is in utero, threatening the life of the mother, it's okay to abort the fetus. Why is it okay to abort the fetus under that circumstance? Because in halachic terminology, the baby is considered what's called a rodev. A rodev means a pursuer. A pursuer is the following. Hang on, I wanna just get a quick drink. One second. Sorry, guys. Uh, for those of you, by the way, listening on the podcast, I apologize for some of these interruptions, but uh, this was a lunch and learn, um, and I just got super thirsty. I'm going to make a little blessing. This will be our little lunch and learn moment. Baruch Adonai Elohim Melech Olam Shakol Ah, delicious. Thank you. Orange juice, nothing like it. All right, so if the infant is still endangering the life of the mother, the infant should still be considered a rodef. Now, a rodef is a situation where you, uh, let's say you're walking on the street and you see someone else who you know is innocent of any crime and they seem to be being pursued by someone else. The pursuer in Hebrew is called the rodef. The pursued is the nirdaf. And you, the third party, have responsibility to help save the road to say to stop the rodef, to save the nirdaf, to stop the pursuer, and 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 aid the pursued. Um, and it is if you you can do anything you need to do to stop the rodef, even lethal force. Better not to use lethal force. If you shoot the person in the knee, that's better. Um, I'm not saying the knee per se. Excuse me. And um, it's basically considered third-party self-defense. Just like if somebody would come and attack you and someone was out to kill you, God forbid, you're permitted to defend yourself. And uh, if you had to, God forbid, kill the other person in your own defense, you couldn't be convicted of murder because it was self-defense. Similarly, you can't be convicted of murder for stopping a pursuer 
who was trying to kill a third party, someone else, you have responsibility, according to Allah, to stop their pursuer in order to save the pursuit. The infant endangering the life of the mother is considered, um, even though the child has no intention and the child has no even ability to think in those terms, but Lemaisa, as they say, the child in and of itself is pursuing the life of the mother, and therefore the infant is a, is a rodef, and therefore as long as the child is in utero, the child's, um, the baby can be aborted in order to save the life of the mother. The Tom was asking though, why is it any different when the head appears? Is the child any less of a pursuer of the mother just because the head has appeared? The child was a pursuer when it was completely in utero, and once the head appears, the child is still considered a pursuer. And the Talmud answers, look at source number two, Isfei Rav Chizla Rav Huna, Yatzar Rosho, Einogin Bolifin Shein Docha Nefesh Nefesh. Once the head appears, you're not allowed to touch the child because then the halachic principle of not one life, can't sacrifice one life to save another, right, kicks into gear. Amai, why is it any different once the head appears? Rodefu, the, 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 the baby is still considered a rodef, and the Talmud answers no. Shani Hasim, it's different. Because once the baby's head appears, Damash Mekarad heaven, he says, Shamayim, heaven is the pursuer. In other words, after the child's head appears, the law of pursuit does not apply because the mother is now being pursued by heaven, so to speak. Uh, maybe by nature, not by the child. Now, this is an important point. Rabbi Tendler, Rav Moshe Feinstein's son-in-law who wrote this whole thing up, continues to explain that Rav Moshe understood that to mean that while the child is within the uterine environment, the child is totally dependent on the mother. Then if the child's existence threatens the mother, the child has the status of a rodef, of a pursuer, and therefore can be sacrificed. But when the child is independent, namely once the child's head appears, and the child is able to breathe independently, his circulatory and respiratory systems are now operating independently of the mother, he is now considered a separate entity, and he is treated as one. He's granted the full rights and privileges of an adult, the most basic of which is the right to life. And then Rav Moshe then pointed to the Rambam, the third source on your handout, uh, who echoes the same idea from the Talmud. Take a look. Af zu mitzvat lo This is indeed one of the negative mitzvahs, one of the things that, one of the, one of the commandments in the Torah, not to take pity on the life of a rodef. You have to stop a rodef, a pursuer. And on this basis, and we're reading in the English, the third source, our sages ruled that when complications arise and a pregnant woman cannot give birth, it is permitted to abort the fetus in her womb. For the fetus is considered a rodef, a pursuer of its mother's life. However, if the head of the fetus emerges, it should not be touched because one life cannot be sacrificed for another. And he says, this is the nature of the world. And it's interesting, he says, this is the nature of the world, natural law. Similar to what the Talmud said, heaven is the pursuer. I, why is this case when the head appears to be more of natural law than when the child is with completely within utero? Why don't we also say heaven is the pursuer? It's not like this baby is trying to kill its mother. So if Moshe held, and this is very important for the Siamese twins, we're going to get back to in a minute. If Moshe held, it must therefore be the fetal status of dependency on the mother that ultimately permits the sacrifice of the child 
to save the mother's life. I'll say it again. Rav Moshe Feinstein held that it must therefore be the fetal status of dependency on the mother that ultimately permits the sacrifice of the child to save the mother's life. It's not just that this child is a pursuer, it's that the child is a pursuer plus it's dependent. Once the child is no longer dependent, i.e. the head has emerged, then you cannot take the life of the child to save the mother. It's got two factors. It's, a, it's pursuing and it's dependent. And once the head appears, you're missing the second requirement. Now, what does this have to do with the twin case? So Moshe held, compared all of this to the case of the Siamese twins. Listen to this, this is brilliant. The baby who only possessed a two-chambered heart, who was referred to as baby A, who had no independent ability to survive on her own, her entire survival was completely dependent on her twin sister, baby B, who had the circulatory system to back up the functioning of the liver and the heart. Rav Moshe asked actually the doctor, Dr. Koop, whether baby A, um, baby A is the baby that only had the two, the stunted two-chambered heart. So Rav Moshe Feinstein asked Dr. Koop whether baby A could survive if she received the entire six-chambered heart. Say hi to my son. Uh, Dr. Koop responded that there was no way to save baby A, the, the, the baby with the two-chambered heart. The issue was whether both should die or whether baby B could be saved. Without the attempted surgical sur um, separation, both would surely die. And therefore, Rav Moshe said that in halachic terminology, the baby with no independent survival, baby A, that's the one that had the two-chambered heart, could be classified as a rodent a pursuer, as if she was pursuing her sister and threatening her life. Again, it's not being done intentionally or deliberately, but it doesn't matter for the law of Rodev to kick in. Rabbi Tedler writes that further testing demonstrated that this halachic dependency, concept of dependency, was in fact the relationship between the two twins. I'll, I'll, let me just finish this whole thing and then I'm going to take your questions and your comments because I know some questions have been coming up, I see. The two-chambered heart of baby A was receiving its blood through two apertures leaking from the four-chambered heart of baby B. And but for that contribution of blood from baby B's four-chambered heart to baby A's two-chambered heart, baby A would have died in utero. And therefore, you can consider baby A a rodev, a pursuer of baby B's life, and therefore have a basis in halacha to sacrifice baby A's life in order to preserve baby B's life. Remember, if you do nothing, they both die. The only question is, is it possible to actively take the life of one to save the other, which is basically hastening death, because they would both eventually die on their own otherwise. And hastening death is tantamount to murder. Rav Moshe said, under these circumstances, it would be permissible. Why? Rav Moshe held that since baby A, was dependent on baby B and threatening her life. Remember, that's what we got from the Talmud. You need two factors in order to abort the child in utero. You need number one, the child is running after the mother's life and number two, dependent on the mother's life. If it's not dependent anymore and it's independent, i.e. the head is showing, then you can't take the baby's life. So Ramosha analogized that whole thing to this situation. 
And he said that since baby A, the one with the two chambers in the heart, was dependent on baby B and threatening baby B's life, she, baby A, was equivalent to an infant in utero who is dependent on its mother's life for survival and poses a threat to his mother's life. And we have sources here on your handout, the Mishnah in the oral tradition as explained by the Talmud, that such a fetus can be aborted under the rule of Rodef. And similarly, reason Rav Moshe, since baby A was dependent on baby B and threatening its life, it too had the status of a Rodef, of a pursuer, and could therefore be sacrificed to save the life of the other. Okay, I've just been doing a lot of talking. Let's see what your questions or comments are. Um, let's say, let's say the baby's head emerges but is not breathing and needs intervention, but that intervention would compromise uh, the mother's life. That's a very interesting question, Khani. I don't know the answer to that. In other words, once the baby's head appears, but the baby is not surviving on its own and it requires intervention, that's an excellent question. I don't know. It would stand to reason that according to our explanation for Rav Moshe, according to our explanation for Rav Moshe's reasoning, then that would then maybe the baby's life could still be taken. But but I'm a little reticent to say that so quickly because once the baby's head appears, even if the child is experiencing complications in surviving independently, it still his head has appeared. And therefore it theoretically is functioning as an independent and now you're taking an independent human life and, and, and killing it. You can only do that if it's dependent. So you're saying, is it still dependent? It's not dependent on the, on the mother anymore, it's out. It may be dependent on the machine. Does that change anything, the machine? I don't know. That's an excellent question. You stumped the rabbi. Good question, I don't know. Um, let's see, someone else asked before, uh, Chani, is there relevance to the fact that the Talmud uses the word nefesh versus any other word, Chani? Not necessarily. We're speaking more in, in halachic, practical terms here, not in terms of, of whether it's what kind of soul. We have different words for different parts of the human soul. So I don't think that's relevant here. Any other comments or questions here? Kind of an interesting uh, situation here. Now, I want to make one or two points. Um, not everyone agreed with Rav Moshe Feinstein's approach here. And I'll explain to you in a minute. This is very interesting. Um, first, Rav Moshe's analysis assumes that one twin was dependent on the other. That was, certainly a, a, that was certainly a good assumption because the doctor, Dr. Koop, made it very clear to Rav Moshe that one was dependent on the other. However, Rabbi Bleich, who was my professor in law school and also my, one of my rabbis at Yeshiva University, points out that Dr. Koop's assertion, listen to this, that the four-chambered heart definitely belonged to one of the twins and not both, or not the other i.e. the four normal four-chambered heart belong. Remember, they had this stunted, combined six-chambered heart. And Rabbi Bleich pointed out that, that Koop's assertion that the four-chambered heart definitely belongs to one of the twins, to baby B and not baby A, is not necessarily supported by any halachic evidence because the proximity of the head to, um, to the heart 
does not necessarily resolve the issue both scientifically or halakhically. The development of the heart and the configuration of the blood vessels leading to the heart are helpful to determine which of the two twins is potentially viable, but it doesn't necessarily determine which one of them owns the, um, the healthy heart. Some medical argued, have argued actually, is that since the organ remains fused, it would actually be difficult to say that one baby got the normal four-chambered heart and the other baby got the stunted two-chambered heart. And therefore, prior to an actual division of the heart, it would appear, according to some sources, that the entire six-chambered heart really belongs to both children. So how do you know? And the whole basis for being able to do this procedure, according to Rav Moshe, was that baby A had the two-chambered, baby B had the four, baby A is threatening the life of baby B, and baby A is dependent on life uh, 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 on baby B. But let's say you can't do this baby A and baby B thing. They're just, they're, they're two children, but they're sharing the same heart. How, what basis would you have to give that heart to one over the other? And this argument is then strengthened by the fact that some experts pointed out that in this particular case with these two children, the blood passed through a hole that was situated in a place where both hearts were fused. And by the fact that the six-chambered heart was supplying blood to both infants, and, if it, and, and therefore you, you can't necessarily establish that one twin owns one heart and the other doesn't, then you can't argue that one twin the life of the other. You then have a situation of not rodef, of pursuer, but you have mutual rodefs, where each infant is, is threatening the life of the other. And we know that the law of mutual pursuers is very, very different. You don't have the law of pursuit where it permits you to sacrifice one life to save the other. Um, now, Rav Moshe gave this reasoning because this is what Dr. Koop told him. The doctor that he had on staff, and Dr. Koop was a major physician, I told you he met, went on to become the Surgeon General under the Reagan administration, he told Rabbi Bleich himself that the four-chambered heart definitely belongs to only one of the two twins, not to both. And based on that, Rav Moshe Paskin, the procedure was permissible. But other doctors might have looked at it differently. And if Rav Moshe Feinstein, let's say there was a different doctor and he didn't look at baby A having this and baby B having that, but they, uh, Rav Moshe would have had to come up with a different conclusion. Also, interesting, others were opposed to Rav Moshe's ruling for different reasons. Some authorities agreed with Rav Moshe's conclusion, but they differed in the rationale. And that's why often it depends on who you go to. Sometimes when you have a very important question, it actually matters what rabbi are you going to consult? Because the rabbi you consult, sometimes different great minds think differently. And Rabbi A may say this and Rabbi B may say that. They're not going to come out with the same information unless the sources are abundantly clear. And that is not always the case. Sometimes the sources lead you, lead different people when they apply the facts, when they apply those sources, those Torah sources to the facts at hand, they may come out with different conclusions. That's why the ethics of our fathers teaches, make for yourself a rabbi. Have one rabbi in your life that you go, your go-to rabbi for questions of such magnitude because um, depending on who the rabbi is, the, the answer could be, quite uh, different. I want to mention one other thing, and I'm going to end with this, because I thought this was pretty cool. The other lesson that comes out of this um, is one of humility. It's a little story within the story I'll conclude with. It's pretty cool. 
Rabbi Tendler reported that when the team of like 20 specialists, medical specialists, were awaiting Rabbi Moshe Feinstein's decision, Dr. C. Everest Koop had to deal with a certain impatience on the part of some of these very prominent physicians. They were waiting to know what to do. Can we perform the procedure? Can we not perform the procedure? Uh, by the way, I didn't even mention, uh, the procedure was performed. Um, uh, okay. Uh, uh, David Chats, welcome. What an honor and pleasure to have you with us. Thank you for joining. Um, they're waiting. Uh, the procedure was performed and they did uh, save uh, Baby B's life. Unfortunately, Baby B, uh, 40 days, about 40 days later, uh, died from other types of complications. Um, you should just know that, um, thank God, of um, Siamese twins and Dicephalus twins, has, there's been a lot of technology. Um, you know that Dr. Ben Carson is considered one of the great uh, foremost uh, surgeons when it comes to um, Dicephalus twins. He, he saved, I think, a case of uh, a babies joined the chest or the head or the neck from Egypt, Egyptian children, um, and he saved their lives. And he's an amazing, amazing physician, even even though he didn't uh, win the presidency. But the second thing I wanted to mention to you is the lesson of humility. As Rabbi Tendler reported, when these medical specialists were waiting whether or not they could perform the procedure or not, C. Everest Koop had to deal with a certain amount of impatience. There was a lapse that interfered, a lapse of time that interfered with their professional, personal lives, and the group was growing more impatient. And Dr. Koop quieted the group and is quoted to have said the following to about 20 doctors. He said, the ethics and morals involved in this decision are too complex for me. I believe they are too complex for you as well. And therefore I referred it to an old rabbi on the Lower East Side of New York. He is a great scholar, a saintly individual. He knows how to answer such questions. And when he tells me, I too will know. I thought that was an unbelievable response from C. Everest Koop. For doctors who don't always have the reputations of being modest. Uh, of course, now with what's happening with Corona, I think if you don't love doctors now, then you never will because I think the doctors and the medical care experts who every single day are putting their lives in danger to treat people with Corona, to save people's lives and to give comfort um, to, to just tens of thousands, millions of people throughout the world. Uh, it's really a testament to the medical profession of the care and compassion and devotion that they have. And here you see also humility. The humility of a great physician to say, you know what, I wanna perform this procedure because if we don't do anything, both babies will die. But you know what, I'm not God and I'm not gonna play God. And, and Cooper, as I said, was not a Jewish man, but he understood that there are ethical considerations. Because if we could just go ahead and say, well, of course it makes perfect sense. Let's just apply reason and logic. You're gonna, if you do nothing, they're both gonna die. We need to do something. Now I hear that, I hear that. And there was, there's a great emotional pull to do that. But you have to take a step back and ask yourself, what are we doing? If we make decisions simply on base of what feels right, and it feels right to at least save one baby's life, then God forbid to do nothing. But that activity 
actually takes away another life. And now we're starting to play God. And I think humility is such an important um, kind of uh, personality trait to develop. To be a religious person, you need to be humble. If you think you know everything, and of course, that's a stupid thing to even consider not doing anything, but wait, do I as a human being have the right, morally and ethically, to hasten the death of a baby? Because if I don't do that, the other baby will die, and at least we'll keep one alive. How do you and I know that one day of life for that baby A was not worth it. How do we really know the value of life? Do we say, therefore, that it would be okay to sacrifice a child that has maybe Down syndrome or some other genetic issue or problem because we know that baby, that child's not going to live as long? Or that, how do we know that, that, that children that grow up to be able to recite Shakespeare and, and become get a PhD in Aristotelian philosophy are more valuable than someone that has some kind of uh, debilitating disease or, or that will shorten their life or, or has some sort of mental condition that, that, that their, 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 IQ, their IQ is just on a much, much lower level. I mean, that's what the Nazis were trying to demonstrate, that there's a value to life like this. That is called playing God, and we don't do that. That's why these rules and these laws and these sources are everything. That's what separates us from making a moral decision or a completely impulsive emotional decision that sounds right and feels right, but may be tampering with the very value of human life. How do we really define life? Do we say someone with a terrible disease who only has X amount of years to live or someone that is mentally just deficient in a certain way, they are less valuable, their life is not worth saving as much. Do, are we really prepared to do that, to say that? Um, do we know enough about the human soul and about the way God created us to make those types of determinations on our own without delving into sources that we believe come from the Torah and ultimately reflect the divine will itself? Without God's approach to these things, applying a perfectly human approach without in, in, in being informed of spiritual wisdom is really playing God and could be a very, very dangerous uh, path to take. So that's one of the reasons why I, I, I'd like to talk about these issues. And as I say, with Corona, with everything going on, these issues have come up, unfortunately, a lot, but um, it goes without saying that all things equal, we preserve life at all costs, of, co of course. Tomorrow, I'm going to delve into something which is very, very practical. Um, no one is doing elective surgery now because nobody wants to be in a hospital and the focus is taking care of people with COVID-19 with this, with this disease. But when we get out of this and somebody wants to put themselves under the knife to have some cosmetic surgery to make themselves look better, is that appropriate according to Jewish law? Is that okay? Is that permissible? How important is it to feel good about the way we look? There are different rabbinic opinions on this, and we're gonna study some of those different opinions tomorrow and talk about everything from nose jobs to breast augmentation, all those fun types of procedures 
that were never really possible X amount of years ago, but are happening, happening very routinely today. What is the Jewish approach to that? So come join us tomorrow as we continue our uh, health and halacha mini-series today and tomorrow. Hope to see you then. Let me just see if there's any other questions or um, comments. I'm sorry I did a lot of lecturing today, not as much uh, involvement of my audience, but um, I thank you all for joining and for participating. Have a wonderful, wonderful day, and please, God, we will uh, see you tomorrow. Also, tonight, there's a special panel um, with Dr. Adina Berkowitz and Rabbi Ezra Kohn, uh, myself, uh, please, God, to talk a little about um, how we are faring. Uh, we're two months into this thing. Uh, it looks like things are starting to get better. And please, God, we hope, we hope, we hope being able to open up little by little, according, of course, to the greatest, highest standards of safety and health. Please stay healthy, wear your masks, practice social distancing, and make sure to not let the day go by without calling someone who is scared, who could use some words of comfort and love. Have a wonderful day, everyone. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Wildcast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do, it helps others discover the show. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us today.